Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht, recording from coronavirus quarantine, where the audio quality is decidedly low. Apologies for that. We obviously aren't going into our studio right now, so you're getting much worse quality than you usually do. Coronavirus is decimating the planet right now, and we're left flat-footed because we don't have a public health care system like Medicare for All or a robust public health system generally, which is the topic of my conversation with Adam Gaffney. Adam is the president of Physicians for a National Health Program, as well as a pulmonary specialist at Cambridge Health Alliance and the Harvard Medical School. He's the author of To Heal Humankind, The Right to Health in History, and he's a regular contributor to Jacobin. Before we go to my conversation with Adam, it feels a little absurd and self-indulgent to talk about anything other than coronavirus right now, so apologies for that. But I do want to mention that the book that I co-authored with Jacobin staff writer Megan Day called Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism has had its release date bumped up to March 24th, given the developments in the Democratic primary. So please, if you have the money, and since you're probably tired of watching Netflix under quarantine and want maybe want to read a book or two, uh, pre-order Bigger Than Bernie from the Verso Books website, versobooks.com. Coronavirus is making literally everything else that we were talking about even just a few weeks ago seem minuscule and worthless, but it's also true that if we're going to get out of this crisis, we need to take the lessons that we learned out of the Bernie Sanders campaigns and run with them to demand things like Medicare for all and a whole lot more. And we sketch out how exactly to do that, how exactly to build that movement in the book. So again, go to versobooks.com and pre-order Bigger Than Bernie by me, Micah Utrecht, and Megan Day. It's currently 20% off. Thank you. Okay, here's Dr. Adam Gaffney. Adam, hello. Micah, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time out of uh, what is a pretty uh, harried time, I'm sure, for a, a doctor like you. Uh, so let's just start with the basics. I mean, what's your initial uh, thoughts on what's what's going on right now? Big picture, how are you feeling? I mean, big picture is that there is massive uncertainty. Um, we know that, you know, COVID-19 can be devastating if it gets out of control, as happened in, in Wuhan, obviously. Um, and we know it can be contained as well, as we're seeing play out in places like South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. Um, and so, you know, wh- how things are going to play out in the United States, I am not entirely sure. You've probably heard the expectations that there's, you know, um, a lot of concern that there could be a surge in cases, there could be a surge in hospitalizations, there could be a surge in intensive care unit admissions, um, and so forth. Um, and so um, I think overall we have to prepare for the worst, uh, generally speaking, and that makes sense. Um, but how things play out exactly, um, no one's sure. Now, you're a doctor who's very prominently argued for the Medicare for all over the last couple of years. Can you just talk about, I, mean, I think people, especially listeners of a podcast like this know that Medicare for all would be a better system to have under a pandemic like this, but lay out the basic case of why we need a public health system, uh, especially in the middle of a pandemic like this one. 
Absolutely. And I'll, I'll preface that with one statement, which is that let's keep in mind that the response to a pandemic, part of it is through the Medicare medical care system, medic, you know, in which hopefully will be Medicare for all. But the public health response from the federal, state, and local public health authorities is just as important. And that's true for any sort of occupational or environmental or you know, new epidemic um, threat. So, um, you know, unfortunately, we've shot ourselves in the foot with a 12-gauge shotgun on that one as well because we've been underfunding our public health authorities, you know, for a long time. Um, so that is one sort of, you know, thing that we should mention is that the public health response, um, which is separate from medical care, is critical and something that um, also needs to be completely transformed and we need to increase funding for our public health authorities and um, you know, that's one important thing. And before, before you go on, so then can you just talk about that distinction a little bit and like what, you know, I think people have obviously in their minds that Medicare for all is desperately needed in this situation for some obvious reasons, but what would a transformed, a, a robust public health system look like? And what is the one that we have right now? Well, I think one that we've had now has just been encumbered by cuts, by inadequate funding. I mean, you know, you see this with the shoddy rollout of the testing, um, you know, uh, uh, fiasco, right? Um, when Trump came into office, he had a hiring freeze for the lasted much of 2017. There was seven, almost 700 vacancies at the Centers for Disease Control um, during that period. Uh, you've probably heard that he disbanded the office that focuses specifically on pandemic response. Um, so, you know, this, you know, the kinds of surveillance, testing, um, awareness, preparation activities that have to happen are, you know, all sort of separate from obviously interacting with, but somewhat separate from the kinds of stuff that I do, say, that's just actually the delivery of healthcare. Um, and so it's not, I don't want to draw too fine of a distinction, but these are, these are two different things and traditionally are done by different bodies. Yeah. So we've got a private health system that we know all of the the uh, horrors that that causes in terms of the Medicare, medical care being totally insanely expensive and all the rest of it. But then there's also this public health system that's been basically ravaged by austerity in the United States. Okay, so let's go back back to what, what a Medicare for all system, aside from the public health response, what a Medicare for all system would be able to do or how it would look differently uh, in handling a pandemic like this. The obvious First answer is that to control a infectious disease epidemic, you need to, like this one, a viral respiratory epidemic, you need to find cases, you need to diagnose people, um, and you need to then be able to isolate them. Now, obviously, if people are afraid to come to medical care because they're going to get slammed with a $1,000 or $10,000 bill at their local ER or hospital, that's going to prove to be a major deterrent in actually getting everyone tested and treated who needs to be tested and treated. And in fact, um, when NBC sort of interviewed the spokesperson from Taiwan, one thing that um, that person said was that, you know, at least he or she felt that the free availability of care and testing did help their response, um, at least to some extent. Um, so th there's no question about that. Um, you know, now right now, the major bottleneck has been the absence of tests altogether, not so much the cost of them, but um, that's going to change as tests become widely available and you're going to see cost-related barriers playing a, a big part. Um, a second thing, though, is that, look, this hasn't really hit us yet, right? I mean, it's hit us psychologically, but um, the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations has been you know, relatively low so far. Um, 
you could imagine that if sort of the worst predictions came through, if millions or tens of millions of people are hospitalized, um, you know, you're talking about an enormous a number of people who are going to be uninsured or, or underinsured, hospitalized for pneumonia, um, and that can be financially ruinous. Um, as we know by the fact that if you're uninsured, hospitalizations can easily get into the tens of thousands of or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And even if you're underinsured, you know, an $8,000 deductible can be ruinous. You know, and there's that Federal Reserve survey from last year that found that like one in four families couldn't afford a $400 sort of emergency expense without, you know, borrowing money or something like that. So this is not money that people have um, lying around. And Furthermore, we seem to be probably heading into a massive recession. There's going to be massive job loss. Um, people are not going to stop getting sick of other things like heart attacks, cancer, um, other types of pneumonia, um, and bullet wounds. And they're going to be immiserated uh, as well by um, the medical care system if we don't have universal health care, if they're uninsured or underinsured. And there's going to be more uninsured people uh, given the way things are going with the economy and the response. And so, you know, whether you have financial ruin from COVID-19 pneumonia or you have financial ruin because of the medical expenses from the COVID-19 recession, either way, that's a bad thing. In the recent debate between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, Biden mentioned at one point uh, something about Italy not, you know, Italy has a public health system and yet uh, and yet COVID-19 is still uh, ravaging the country. Yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> I mean, that was the, probably the point of the debate when I was screaming at the TV uh, the loudest. But uh, explain why, why that is an absurd uh, point for someone like Biden to use as a cudgel against Medicare for all. I mean, it's just an absurd point because obviously a Medicare for all system is not going to turn back a viral respiratory virus, just like it's not going to turn back, you know, an earthquake or a volcano or tornado or a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, yeah the, the United Kingdom has and the NHS and yet somehow people still get cancer. Exactly. I mean, I think the obvious example is HIV, right? I mean, obviously, HIV has been in every country in the world. It's, that, there's no stopping that. Um, but, um, you know, for a long time, um, we were, you know, a country where people were dying because they couldn't afford the drugs, right? Um, and um, and many, in, in many cases, that's still true around the world. Uh, yeah, you're still going to have um, that epidemic, but you're going to ensure that people are actually being treated. And even if there's not great treatments, at least they're not going broke being treated. So no one in those Italian hospitals hospitals, um, at the very least, they're not going to be um, ruined financially because they were hospitalized. And that we can't promise that here. Um, so I think that's one side of the story. Uh, the second side of the story, I think, is the fact that, you know, our whole healthcare system has, is, 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 is um, so market-based in the sense of the fact that, you know, where we have hospitals, where we have ICUs, who has ventilators, um, is all being sort of driven by market dynamics. Um, and that means that it's irrational. Um, just to give an example, you know, um, one of the things in the news the last couple of weeks, that a statistic that has been cited frequently, is the fact that the U.S., you know, has sort of less hospital beds per capita 
than many other countries, and people have done sort of calculations about how that's going to play out if there was a big need for more hospital. Um, and you might ask, you know, well, why is that? And it's it's funny, not funny, but it's it's true that it's coming on the heels of um, you know years of news about rural hospitals closing, Hanneman um, Hospital, uh, which is a was a was a sort of safety net hospital in downtown Philadelphia, um, closed last year. Bernie Sanders had a big rally outside of it. You probably remember that. It's not because it was a rational decision that there that we you know needed less hospital beds because people were being hospitalized less. It's it's because of of, of market dynamics. Those are hospitals that are unprofitable. So we have less hospital beds. It turns out we actually have more ICU beds per capita than most of the countries. Um, some argue too many, but though right now that's that's probably a good thing. Um, but we also know that there's huge disparities uh, between places. And that's, again, because of the, the fact that where new healthcare infrastructure appears is driven by market dynamics, not by community health needs. So we might have enough sort of for the country, but we don't know that we have enough in the right places because we're not actually planning healthcare infrastructure. Um, and a Medicare for all system beyond giving first dollar coverage, which is what we focus on most, I think, in the in our advocacy, it also means planning, planning of healthcare infrastructure uh, based on community need, not based on where profits happen to be. Well, and, and obviously, when you're having that discussion, you're getting into the discussion of how socialists argue that we should be dealing with uh, society generally, right? That we need to have uh, planning rather than just tossing things over to uh, to market forces and letting them uh, work their uh, their their magic, uh, their their black magic in many cases. Uh, so the thing that I think came to my mind very quickly once this pandemic was going and uh, what uh, others have mentioned too is is a kind of like a left wing version of a shock doctrine. You know the the idea that was made popular by Naomi Klein. Uh, but you know, using the, this pandemic as a kind of shock doctrine uh, for the left, using this pandemic as a way to advance uh, the the kinds of things that can address health crises and all the other crises that we are or we all know that we already face in, in society. Um, and so, I'm wondering about that with uh, Medicare for all specifically. Are there ways that a response to coronavirus can long-term or medium-term or short-term advance the cause of winning a public health system, a single-payer system? Yeah, I mean, I think none of us know what what the effect will be um, on our politics or our policies, but we absolutely should um, make the argument that, you know, disasters like this or other types of crises or whatever epidemics are coming down the road um, would be better handled with a national health program with unified governance and unified financing, um, and which is Medicare for all. And um, so we certainly should be articulating those arguments, um, especially because people are going to be looking for, for, for answers. I mean, th there's going to be a lot of pain ahead, in my opinion, regardless of what happens with the actual coronavirus, um, given given the sort of economic um, um, disaster that this is going to prove to be. So, so yes, we, 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 ha we, we have to make those arguments. But I guess what I'm wondering is, like, what are the specific ways that we could do that policy-wise? I mean, today in Jacobin, for example, today on Thursday, the day we're recording this, uh, Dustin Guastella makes an argument uh, to do an emergency expansion of Medicare to cover 
costs for treatment and testing for all citizens. Um, and uh, it's easy to see. I mean, th- th- that seems like a no brainer. Obviously, that's what we have to have in order to uh, to help stop the, the spread of the virus. Uh, but there are also ways where if we establish that emergency expansion, it's easy to see that becoming a more permanent part of the American health system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there have been proposals like, the you know, the one you said, which sounds more expansionary. I mean, in the House bill, um, the coronavirus bill that the House passed on Friday, they also include sort of free coverage of, of um, testing, but they left out treatment. And I think treatment's critical. Um I certainly would be in favor of, and I think we can advocate for those kinds of incremental um, expansions. Um, you know, obviously, there's something very arbitrary about, you know, if you come in with in- severe pneumonia from influenza, that you could be broke. But if you come in with severe influenza from, from you know, coronavirus, you'd, you'd be covered. Um, and I'm not saying I'm against doing that, obviously. But, but yes, I think we, we, we can and should, you know, make those demands for those kinds of incremental changes. I don't know, you know, and, and there may be some, there may be some appetite for it, um, you know, in, 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 in Congress. Um, but obviously we have to go beyond that. The, you mentioned earlier the necessity of planning in response to uh, something like this. I mean, is this, uh, this isn't quite your area of expertise, but um, it, it seems obvious that the kind of, World War II style requisitioning of uh, industries, even nationalization of industries, whether temporary or permanently, has to be done to shift production to moving things like expanding uh, the production of ventilators, right? Which there's been all kinds of talk about uh, there not being enough ventilators and certainly not enough ventilators for what is probably going to come. This huge spike in cases uh, of people with the virus who are, you know, are going to need ventilators in order in order to live, uh, and the the free market is not has not produced enough of those right now. So that seems like the kind of thing that is desperately needed to uh, be, be a part of that kind of uh, planning. And and to do that kind of planning, you need government to take over some of these industries. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if we're really talking about a looming catastrophe where we're going to be, you know, um, rationing who gets a ventilator because we can't, you know, the industry hasn't produced enough, then I, I think those kinds of, yeah, World War II types of measures make sense. You know, I I think that um, there's, but there's also the, the this sort of healthcare financing bit of this, which is putting outside, put, putting aside the fact how many ventilators there are, um, you know, where are they going? Why is it that we have hospitals acting sort of as atomized forces, each trying to sort of bid for ventilators separately? Uh, we, we could very, given the way, you know, our hospital financing is set up, we may, we may very well have a scenario where there's unused ventilators at one hospital and, 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 and a paucity elsewhere. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I hear the sort of supply side arguments. And I, and I think if we're really in that situation, then that's we have to do what we have to do. Um, but we have to also think about the distributive kind of aspect of this. Um, and if you had a rational sort of unified healthcare system, you'd actually know, you know, where the ventilators need to go, which hospitals have them, which hospitals need more. Can we shift some from one to the other? Like many things in American society, uh, and this may be one exception because it's such a sort of, um, um, you know, once in a lifetime kind of event, but putting outside COVID-19 for a moment, 
most things in American healthcare, we have the resources and the financing and the funding and all that uh, it, in terms of its aggregate. It's just that it's being distributed and made available in all the wrong ways. Um, and so I think in general, that's the bigger problem in healthcare um, financing. Uh, there, there, there may be certain exceptions as we're dealing with today. What's the role of someone like Bernie Sanders in a crisis like this? I mean, we the article I mentioned earlier by Dustin Guastella is called uh, We're at War with Coronavirus and Bernie Should Be Our General. Um, it seems like the Democratic Party's response in some cases, I mean, they've been outflanked by the Republicans from the left in some cases in terms of, for example, the proposals for uh, basic income payments to Americans. I mean, the Democrats have been incredibly miserly on the stuff that they have put forward and the Republicans have produced uh, proposals that are, are proposing more money for Americans. I mean, when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, I mean, November, assuming we still have an election in November, uh, you know, Donald Trump, uh, I mean, he, he could, that, that's the best gift that uh, could give, be given to Donald Trump is that, that Democrats refuse to put forward a, a kind of bold proposal on something like uh, uh, basic income payments to Americans. Trump, proposes a bolder one, and then Trump wins in November. Um, so, uh, yeah, what, what's your response to the sort of how the Democrats have responded to the to the crisis so far and what the role of a Bernie Sanders or an AOC or an Ilhan Omar or any of these new left elected officials uh, can be and should be? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that you, you know, hit, hit the big points here. I mean, first, I would just say we can't underestimate, you know, the fallout from our response to COVID economically, um, you know where things are heading now. Projections are, 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 you know, deep recession, and you know I think that Republicans see that, and so they're coming out with as you know a very sort of populist package that's sort of outflanking the Democrats. Um, and I don't think the Democrats can can sort of swing left enough on this. Um, I think that they need to realize that these public health measures alone are going to be devastating to people. And if we're going to do them, we need a extremely aggressive welfare state expansion, you know, all the kinds of things you're talking about. Um, and I think it's a very dangerous moment politically uh, because of that, because um, we don't know, you know, what's going to happen and what they're going to do, what they're going to propose. Um, and if they will be outflanked by Trump on that question. So one of the essential pieces of responding to this crisis is not just the immediate frontline care to people, of course, that we've mentioned the provision of ventilators and treating the people who are already infected, but it's also the development of a vaccine and I assume other kinds of drugs that can uh, that can respond to this. And this is an area where the free market failure in providing for human needs seems the most clear because it it seems like an, the you can't you can't rely on the government to uh, develop these kinds of vaccines or medications in response to the, or excuse me you can't rely on the free market to uh, rely on on developing these kinds of vaccines and medications because it's just not profitable for these companies right yeah I mean I think it depends sometimes the sometimes there are you know there are highly profitable um, vaccines and drugs sometimes they're not and they get neglected um, but the larger question I think really is why don't we just fund the development of our drugs and our pharmaceuticals and our vaccines directly 
as we often are already doing to a large extent, and then keep those drugs and vaccines in the public domain so that they can be sold at cost when they're made, right? I mean, that's the fundamental problem. It's we you know, already fund most of the basic science behind drugs and behind vaccines, and then the pharmaceutical companies swoop in at the last minute sort of develop the sort of late stage to the late stages of the development, own the patents, and then basically can charge us anything they want. Um, and that is what creates the artificial shortages in drugs. That's why people go without needed drugs, not because they're expensive to produce, but because, you know, a pharmaceutical company owns a patent. Um, so what we, you know, have proposed in PNHP and, and, and others certainly is moving towards a model of, um, of direct public uh, drug research and development all the way through the process so that, you know, we really live up to that kind of could you patent the sun mantra, you know, of the Salk vaccine um, where, where we keep it fully in the public domain. And I think that's where we really have to be have to be heading. Can you explain that last part of what you mentioned, the, the can you patent the sun? And, and how that relates to it? It, it relates to it. I mean, Jonas Salk, you know, um, developed the polio vaccine. Um, was once asked, you know, who owns the patent on the on the pat on the the, the the polio vaccine, and said something along the lines of, uh, you know, no one owns it. You, you know, um, the people own it. Uh, you know, could you patent the sun? And, and the idea is that you know our current patent-driven model of drug development, which is basically we say, you know, if you develop a drug, uh, you get the patent, you can sell it whatever you want, um, and that's your incentive for developing it. Um, and we've done that for many years now, and it's resulted in enormous amounts of profits for the pharmaceutical industry, but um, it, unaffordable drugs for everybody else. Um, that's actually not necessary. People um, you know, scientists would be happy to work to make cures uh, without the promise of, of billions of dollars in, in, in down the road earnings. Um, so we could just sort of take the NIH, the National Institute of Health, which does a lot of basic science. We could expand its mission to have them also fund drug development through the whole process. And then the, the products of that, the research of that, the, the new drugs would just be produced at cost, you know, um, not at the enormous, you know, jacked up. Uh, artificial prices that that we see um, today. So it sounds like we've got our list of demands going forward for the for the coronavirus. We obviously need a move towards Medicare for all, whether that's through an expansion or dramatic expansion of Medicare or some other means. Uh, we need to change the public health response, obviously, uh, and we need a public uh, pub public ownership and. And development, and then, and then, you know, keep, keeping the development of drugs uh, and vaccines out of the hands of the people who want to be Corona profiteers. Uh, it's you know, this is this should be should be easy enough, right? <laughs> Some, uh, it's just a few modest demands. I mean, <laughs> well, Adam, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs>